Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Let's begin with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, welcome back to our study of Has American Christianity Failed? We left off right around page 41, and I want to simply recap uh, the ground we've covered here in chapter 2. We've only just begun this chapter. And uh, Wolfmuller has titled this, God Speaks. Remember how he began with the distinction between religious and spiritual? Everyone today wants to be spiritual, no one wants to be religious. And then he makes this connection, he says, uh, those who want to be spiritual want a God who does not speak. If there's no speaking, there's no judgment. And then, of course, the problem is if there's no speaking, there's no judgment, but then there's also no gospel. There's also no forgiveness. Okay, so um, we want to, uh, we obviously acknowledge that we have a God who speaks and does so in and through his work. Now, we then were introduced by Wolfmuller uh, to higher criticism and this distinction, it's very subtle, that scripture contains God's word. Scripture is not God's word. Scripture contains God's word. What's the main problem with that view, that Scripture contains God's word? Yeah. Yep, just heard it. So who determines then which part of Scripture is God's word and which part isn't? The individual. It's really, frankly, no better if it's a church body or a denomination or a pastor. Um, it makes no material difference. And then we... Let's see if you can recall this distinction, too. Wolfmuller brings this up. But if we are the ones who determine what part of Scripture is God's Word, are we sitting over the text in judgment over it, or are we sitting under the text in service to it? Over it in judgment, if we're sitting there saying, um, hey, I'm going to determine what makes sense to me. I'm going to determine how to interpret this in a way that it makes sense to me. I'm going to interpret this in a way that it fits my emotional needs of what I think it should be, etc. Okay. So that is a magisterial use of Scripture, isn't it? That word majesty, sitting over the top of the Scriptures and judging it. Ultimately, since it's God's Word, sitting over the top of God's Word and, and making judgments upon God. And what's the opposite of the magisterial use of reason, the magisterial use of emotion, the magisterial reading of Scripture? What would that be? What's the other M word? ministerial, underneath and service to. And you remember last week I reintroduced you to that great quote by Augustine, crede ut intelligas, believe in order to understand. So you take God's word and you say, even if your reason recoils, even if your emotions don't agree, you say, you submit yourself and you say, you have spoken, I believe. You are God, I am not. All men are liars, your word endures forever. I believe, Lord, help me understand. I believe, Lord, conform my emotions, conform my heart to your heart. 
I know that you are love, I am not. I know that you are good, I am not. So that then becomes the devotional practice of hearing, reading, learning God's word. It is an act of submission, submitting ourselves to what the word says and then seeking to use our reason, our emotions, all our senses in service to that word. Okay, magisterial, ministerial, really important distinction. Okay, oops, I see my pages flipped on me here. So back to uh, 41. Oh, yes, please. Oh, <laughs> oh! Thank you, Cassie. Oh, <laughs> I I hear the word science all the time. Yes, isn't that interesting? I mean, that could take us down an entire different path, couldn't it? But why do you believe that science, or you simply state your opinion and then you know say because science says so? Yeah, it is interesting to think about that. That in many of our circles, science has simply replaced the word of God. So, do you believe this? You know, what, what, is the highest, what is the highest source of wisdom or authority in our culture? Science, largely, largely. Um, so, and then, and then what, is, what is meant by science? Well, nobody knows. <laughs> nobody knows. Does it mean the scientific method? Because that's what science actually means, but is that how people use it? The I believe this because the scientific method has proved it beyond the shadow of a doubt? No, that's not what they mean. They just mean that this is what I'm being told by people I perceive to be more intelligent than me. Um, so what we actually then have is a new clergy class and a new epistemology. That's where you get your wisdom, not from God, but from science. And then the new clergy are the scientists and the Dr. Fauci's of the world who uh, promulgate all of this to us. And then, and then that becomes your authority, just this, not because God says so, but because science says so. So we can see these things happening in our culture. Obviously, there's a spectrum here between not very intellectual approaches to this and more intellectual approaches to this. But it would do us well as Christians to remind our, our uh, fellow citizens in this country that science is shorthand for a method, that science proper actually has no content. <laughs> in fact, science, because it is a method, the content it produces is constantly changing. It always reminds me just a little bit of what our Lord said about his word being a rock and building your house upon a rock as opposed to something that's constantly changing, something like shifting sand, building your house upon that. When the storm comes, the house falls and great is its fall. And I think that that is a pretty direct pretty direct uh, correlation in our culture to science. People saying, well, I believe this. Well, do you realize that 10 years ago they believed something totally different? Do you believe that, do you realize that 10 years from now they're going to believe something entirely different from that? So be careful what you, uh, what you anchor yourself to. Please. I think you just said it, but science can, you can manipulate the outcome just like years ago they used to say that cigarette smoke was so healthy for you and sugar was so good for you Clears and the so lungs. you know it just yeah 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 it yeah. opens up Energizes the t-zone right. right yeah yeah it's true well so how can we think of science as just objectively and in terms of a method as christians we view it as a tool in fact it's a subset of reason that's really what the scientific method is it's a subset of reason we don't, we don't reject the use of reason any more than we reject 
emotions or any other part of what it means to be a human being. We just recognize that these things need to be properly ordered in the first place in submission to God and, and in a ministerial use, a servant use um, underneath the authority of his word. And then we need to recognize that these things are just tools and so they're going to have their limitations. Um, maybe some of you have had uh, the opportunity to encounter one of these rather tragic personalities that they only believe what's rational. They only be and, and what you realize in talking with them is they've just, it's not that they believe what's rational. It's that they only believe what they've come to accept as rational. And then they've, and in so doing, they've, they've so narrowed their life and experience that they've become cold and dead to um, the fullness of what it means to be a human being. By contrast, I suppose you could say in our culture, maybe particularly my generation and younger, there's been such a rebellion against reason that it's all feelings and emotion. So I, you'll, you'll frequently hear people express themselves. I mean, we all swim in this fish tank, so uh, I, I mean, I even find myself speaking this way. But it, instead of saying, I think, say, I feel, you know. I feel that it's this, or I feel that it's that. Um, why? Well, feelings can't be subjected to scrutiny, so there's that little offset there. But we have this same sort of limiting, then, of the human being, where it's like, well, if all you are is your feelings and no reason, are you the fullness of what it means to be a human being? Certainly not. Yes, please. Pastor Rudy, I'm one of those um, cold, dead reasoner people. Okay. And that's yeah. part of why I was a philosophy major. And I will say just oh, I'm sorry. as a random. No, I'm yeah, sure. no, because what you said is right. And um, it was limited to what I believe because I, I trusted my own knowledge more than anything. I'm like, I know it's logical. I know it's reasonable. And by the by God, I'm studying it at right. school. So I definitely know. And uh, it. I just wanted to comment that. God can even turn those people because I would have gone, like you said, to the culture side of feeling. Mm -hmm. That's exactly where I would have headed, especially in the time period I was still young and impressionable and growing up as the whole culture turned from reason to feeling. And uh, But God did curb that uh, trajectory, and I'm very grateful for it. But I just right. had a comment that it's true. I know exactly what you're talking about, but... God can even yeah, absolutely. lead those people to the truth. Well, thank you so much for that. That's, that's exactly right. So, I mean, to be a f the fullness of, of what it means to be a human being is to recognize that we're creatures of God and we're subject to his word. And then we want to use our reason and our senses to the full capability um, in a way that's subservient to him and to his word. And that's, that's where we reach the fullness of what it means to be a human being. As soon as we overturn God's word as the authority in our lives, then we're left with reason or feelings or some other contrivance. And ultimately then, we're left without bearings. We're simply, we may think we're objective, we may think our feelings are right because they're coming from our heart, but in truth, we, we've broken away and we're lost in a kind of subjectivism, even solipsism, which is where you simply get so self-absorbed, self everything that you think is objective truth, everything that you feel is objective truth, nobody else's feelings or perceptions are really valid, they're all secondary to your own. Okay, so we can, we can diagnose this in a lot of different ways, but I think for our purposes here in Wolfmuller's chapter, we want to see that we have to have this higher authority, the Word of God, this is, I mean, it's objectively true. And then it's essential for us in our nature or else we're going to lose our bearings and become 
um, half, half the human being we're supposed to be and twisted and distorted, you know. Yes, please. Um, I also think that it's uh, inherent in development, too. Um, when you're younger, you know what you know, and you think you know lots. And as you get older, you realize through life's experiences that what you knew wasn't exactly the way it really was because you have had different sets of experiences and stuff that have gone on. So it's often, it's part, you know, we look at young people and we think arrogant, they think they know it all, whatever sometimes. And it's not that, it's a developmental problem. It's a developmental issue. And we have to have grace with them because they will come around as they get more often, not always, but you know, more experiences that they draw from and they look at and they see things aren't quite so white and black and, and, and it, it's just, you know, that's, it's part of how we grow and gain experience, hopefully. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm shooting for that kind of way of being when I get older, is not getting more close, but more open. Well, and God has a, God has a way of showing in his, in his grace, in his love that is parental in nature, he has a way of showing us the limitations of following pure reason as we think we're following or just feeling our emotions as our feelings as um, he, he shows us the futility of that way until we find ourselves crying out um, for something that's objective. Yeah, one of the things I had done at Concordia, I used to teach a child development course mm -hmm. and we called it the three pillars of health and it was emotion, cognitive and physical health and these three things weren't equal and the school was going to tip over. Mm -hmm. Yeah, correct, correct. And just recognizing that these are all good gifts of God, meant to be rightly used, rightly ordered under the authority of His Word, then we're off on the right track. And we can see where these things become disordered when they usurp the authority of, of God's Word. Too emotional, yeah. Too rational. Yeah, yeah, right. Or I'm going to be in the gym all my mm -hmm. life. And we can analyze that in, on an individual basis. We can analyze that on a cultural basis, too, which I think we've, we've probably done a little bit of both here. Okay, so we see this idea of higher criticism um, that scriptures contain God's word is a kind of Pandora's box that opens up into uh, relativism and the magisterial positioning of the individual person above the scriptures. Okay, on the bottom of 41, Wolfmuller introduces us to these, well, I don't know, he fleshes out for us these three Lochi in uh, the theology of the word, inspired, inerrant, and infallible. And he says that by and large, American Christianity, higher criticism notwithstanding, uh, American Christianity has held up these principles. So he mentions Southern Baptist congregations, Bible churches, most non-denominational congregations. I could wish he said um, LCMS and... Uh, uh, Wisconsin Synod and some of the more faithful Lutheran traditions. But let's get into inspired on the bottom of 41. Inspired means breathed by God. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, 
equipped for every good work. God is the source of the scriptures. Scripture comes from the mouth of God. This is uh, Matthew 4.4. All of the other attributes of the Bible follow from the inspiration of scriptures. Now, I really appreciate the way that Pastor Wolfmuller has put this. It's certainly laid out in a simple, clear, easy to understand way. The only thing that uh, maybe particularly those of you who are um, lifelong Lutherans or longtime Lutherans, what I want you to reflect on too is that our doctrine of the Word and the Scriptures being God's Word, while it is just this simple, it's not merely this simple. Okay? And a lot of popular kind of Roman Catholic apologists will come and start to poke holes if this is sort of your statement is, um, well, all scripture is God-breathed, and we translate that as inspired, okay? Well, then who chooses what scriptures fit within the Bible? And then the argument from a Roman Catholic apologist is, well, the church chose that. See, so now you have two different authorities. Okay, I don't want to devolve into the complexity of all of these arguments right now because it's simply beyond the scope of, of this class and the intention of this text. But I do want to say that Lutheranism has answers that go all the way down and defeat these different apologetic attacks or acknowledge the facts that the canon of Scripture is open and has a variety of levels of authority based on the Catholic agreement of the church throughout history. Our doctrine of the word being inspired, what are the other eyes here, inerrant and infallible, can be explained in a very simple way, but don't be deceived. We can make that argument all the way down, all the way up, as complex as it needs to go. I don't want you to feel like we've got some sort of childish, ham-fisted, sola scriptura view going on here, because it's just not historically or objectively accurate. Um, one of the things that Wolfmuller doesn't point out, but it's nascent here in his reference to Matthew 4.4, 4, is a very helpful approach uh, to this question of Scripture being God's Word is to begin with Christ, begin with the gospel that has been preached to your ears, begin with your faith in Jesus, and then because you know who Jesus is and what he's done for you, say, okay, Lord, what is your view of the scriptures? And you'll find two things. You'll find, um, for example, when Jesus refers to the scriptures, of course, he's referring to the Old Testament. What does he say? And that's Matthew 4, 4. Scripture comes from the mouth of God. Not one jot, not one tittle is going to pass away. Heaven and earth are going to pass away, but not the tiniest mark from God's word is going to pass away. So what's, what is Jesus' view of the Old Testament? Well, inspired, inerrant, infallible. Okay, so if it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. What about the New Testament? Okay. Here you might turn, for example, uh, you could turn a number of places, but you might turn um, to what Jesus tells his disciples in the Gospel of John that after his death and resurrection, he's going to send his Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is going to bring them into the fullness of the truth. Okay. Who are these apostles? Well, they are the ones responsible for the writing of the New Testament scriptures and the oversight of them as these different documents are included into the canon. So there's Jesus' guarantee for us of the New Testament. 
Okay? So what we're really kind of dancing around, of course, is formally this idea of epistemology, how it is you know what you know. And I don't want to get too philosophical about this. Um, but there are different ways of approaching this question from a Christian view. And one way, as I've just presented, is to start with Jesus and what you know about him and then say, okay, since you are true God and true man, what do you think of the scriptures? And you can see very clearly that Jesus is guaranteeing their veracity. He is guaranteeing that they are God's word for us. That may be good enough. It is also simply, um, you know, to be taken from another, from another angle, I think, that you could just say, well, my presupposition is that Scripture is God's Word. Right? And that might strike us as kind of weak until you analyze it from this angle. Someone who's going to disagree with that is going to have the presupposition that it isn't God's Word. And so it's like, okay, well, you've got your presupposition and I've got mine. Um, so, so we're equally biased. Now let's have a conversation about that, um, based on that. So there's nothing to shy away from this. I don't know what it is in our culture. We, we've come to see presuppositions as some kind of like inherent weakness. I don't think there's any weakness there at all. We just acknowledge, I'm a child of God, and my presupposition is that this book is God's word. Deal with it. You're not a child of God, and your presupposition is that it isn't. I'm dealing with it. Right? So we can be just honest, even at that level, as we approach this question. Okay. So... Um, Inspiration, obviously we can quote uh, uh, Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God, and I simply want you to see that um, we Lutherans have a rather sophisticated doctrine of sola scriptura, and one that you need not be ashamed of, even if you don't have the answer for the Roman Catholic apologist or whoever it may be. All right, any thoughts or questions on that point before we move on to inerrant? Yes, I see a hand over here. so you're not going to have to go to the gym anytime this week. You'll have all your calories burned running the microphone around. Uh, going back to John, what do you think of the uh, John 1.1? Is that linking the word, was God, is God, all those things, isn't that linking the word to God uh, and, and put it on a, on a really high level. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we can, yeah, that's, that's a great point. When, when we recognize we're talking within a Christian circle and we're doing biblical theology, uh, it certainly stands to mention that Christ himself is called the Word. And he is the Word that becomes flesh. And, of course, there's this parallel in the Scriptures. Are the Scriptures written by God or by man? Yes, <laughs> right? Yes is the correct answer. 100% by man? Well, yeah, God's not moving in, you know, with an invisible hand, the pen. 100% by God? Yeah, because these aren't human ideas of human origin. So the scriptures themselves are the product of God and man. And you can see how that's precisely parallel to our Lord Jesus, who is true God and true man, the Word, but the Word made flesh. In, the sense, in a sense, the scriptures are the Word of God in flesh or in form, aren't they, in written format? Yeah, exactly right. So thank you for that, Bob. It's a really deep concept. And then, of course, you can probe even a little deeper if you want to. Um, and you can read uh, the Word. So, so in John's Gospel, Word is logos, and logos is a loaded term. 
uh, particularly in the in the first century and the and the subsequent centuries. And logos comes to comes to actually uh, probably more accurately refer to meaning, meaning, which is quite profound in our uh, relativistic culture where I determine my own meaning and I determine who I am and what things mean. I am the Lord of all of that, which is really just post-enlightenment thinking. This is where the enlightenment has led us. How can we think in a more biblical way when we consider that the word made flesh is meaning enfleshed and that there is frankly no meaning apart from Christ, then you realize there is no story, there is no narrative apart from Christ. There is nothing that we can think about ourselves or the world that is true unless it is found in Christ. And so there's this really profound sense in which we've come to see that Jesus is meaning itself. So we can reflect very deeply on these different facets of, uh, of the Word and that connection of Christ being the Word and the connection with the Scriptures and then connection of how we, how we think of and perceive uh, the entire world, really all things. Okay, anything else? Are we ready to go on to inerrant? Let's go to 42, very top. Inerrant means without error. When we speak of the inerrancy of the scriptures, we are rejoicing that the Bible is true, that it is, in fact, the standard of truth. We measure the truth of any other claim against scripture. The inerrancy of the scriptures includes all the things that the Bible recounts, including historical facts. The Bible is both a theology book and a history book. This has profound implications. But here it is enough to note that the inerrancy of the scriptures refers not only to the theology of the Bible, but to its history as well. Okay. Well, with this topic, too, there are a number of complexities, and there's a much more sophisticated presentation that could be made on this point. It's, not, it's just beyond the scope of what Wolfmuller's really trying to do here, so no fault on him. Uh, but when we talk about inerrant, we have no problem saying that there are different manuscripts, and there are differences between those manuscripts, and we need to use the reason God has given us to ascertain what the original most likely said. Um, we also are going to acknowledge that while the Bible is a book of theology and a book of history, that's not all it is. There are different literary genres at use in the scriptures, and we want to pay attention to those. Otherwise, we're going to end up reading uh, Revelation, for example, as if it were a newspaper or some kind of horoscope, and we're going to plot out on the timeline where we think we are. We're going to be completely misguided because we don't understand the nature of the literature. So um, we want to, again, assert wholeheartedly that the scriptures are inerrant. We want to point to facts that even over the past few decades, even the, the time most of us have been alive, there have been things that science told us were completely false about the Bible and completely impossible, only to have an archaeological discovery overturn science and assert the truth of the scriptures. This has happened recurrent times, multiple times. So, um, and, and then also we need to understand that the historical scriptures and the historical narratives 
unless the text gives us some indication otherwise, we need to see that they're presenting true history. There's no doubt about it. And so we need to take that at face value and uh, believe that even when we, from our vantage point, can't see how that could be true, we simply need to say, well, it must have been. Okay, so we could get more complex even still, but I think that that suffices to say that, look, we assert that it's inerrant, but don't mistake this for some sort of ham-fisted, fundamentalistic approach. Um, we are well aware of the attacks on this doctrine, and we have very good answers for them. All right, anything on inerrancy? All right, next up, infallible. Infallible means unable to err. Infallibility is very close to inerrancy. The difference is subtle but important. Inerrancy refers to the words written. Infallibility refers to the writer, in this case, God. It is possible for a human work to be inerrant, but it is impossible for a person to be infallible. Infallibility is more about the God who inspired the scriptures than it is about the scriptures he inspired. It is impossible for God to lie, Hebrews 6.18. The scriptures inspired by God cannot lie. Okay, so when we're talking about fallibility, we're talking about could there be something wrong or deceitful or the, the private opinion of, a, of one of the biblical writers that is you know, somehow in error or culturally bound. And the answer of, of infallibility is no, because ultimately it's the Holy Spirit who's speaking through that author and through that writer. And, what the, and since the Holy Spirit cannot be wrong and cannot lie, he is infallible, um, that we trust that that word is infallible as well. So maybe one way that that applies concretely, and we've mentioned this before, there's a certain Lutheran denomination, the largest temporarily, I think, in America as it collapses, um, that, that teaches basically that when St. Paul talks about certain issues, um, practical first century issues in the churches there, that what he is writing is uh, even though he presents it as universal, is in fact time-bound and relative and contextual and can now be dismissed, okay? that would be an attack on infallibility. And so we would, we would assert, uh, we would argue this way. Well, if that's true, then, then the Holy Spirit would be saying one thing here and a different thing here. The Holy Spirit would be contradicting himself. We know that the Holy Spirit doesn't contradict himself. The Holy Spirit doesn't deceive or lie. And so we know that that, that perspective on the scriptures is false. Okay, so that's the importance of infallibility. Any, any questions there? Yes, sir. One, one second, please. So in, in philosophy, we've got illogical fallacies that and it seems like in this case, uh, it either it's it's either in the category of circular reasoning or begging the question. Mm -hmm. Where mm -hmm. I think that under normal circumstances we would use that as a way to refute the argument, but I think in this case, it's it is the argument. Like it's the only valid place where we can use a begging the question thing, right? So we read in the scriptures. Well, this is contradictory. It sounds 
to me reasonable, like from a reason standpoint, contradictory, but it's God's word, so it's not. Mm -hmm. Right? So it, it, you're, you're begging the questions, you're, you're assuming that it can't be contradictory, even though you're reading, right? right. But we, we accept that because it's God's word, and it's God's word because God said so, which is circular, right? But, mm -hmm. And um, so how do you how do you refute that? Or you just let it stand and just be like, nope, yep, you're right. It's circular reasoning. I'm begging the question, and I'm perfectly fine with that. And yeah, I think right. I think in that case you would you would back off and say I'm not really making a circular <laughs> argument. I'm just simply making an assertion. I'm uh, it's just a presupposition, and you know it, that it's just infallible. It's written by God and it's infallible. And if someone said why, then you're going to either just say hey that's my presupposition, or you might, and I would kind of advise this just because in the discussion you're talking with a living human being who probably doesn't have faith in Jesus, so you can take it to Jesus, I believe it because he believes it. Well, why do you believe in Jesus, you know, kind of thing. It gives you many different opportunities, depending on who you're talking to, to take a different approach. Um, I, think, I think in a formal sort of way, you can, you can make this argument. You can say, okay, I am going to leave off the table the infallibility, inerrancy and inspiration of the Holy Scriptures, okay? And I'm going to just begin with uh, a, a kind of existential argument, and I'm, going to, and I'm going to say that I am simply convinced by the evidence that Jesus is risen from the dead. I'm convinced by the eyewitness testimony, by the Scriptures, by the people willing to lay down their lives. I'm, I'm reasonably convinced that it's more reasonable to believe that he's risen from the dead than that he's not. Why didn't they produce the body? Okay. Um, so, so that's where I'm going to begin. Right? Not, not asserting anything about God's word. I'm just going to assert that it's reasonable to believe in Jesus. And then as Jesus reveals things to me in his word, okay, and, and you know, I'm sure there's a, there's a kind of presupposition in that as well, but again, from just the natural flow of the way humans think, okay, I'm acknowledging that Jesus rose from the dead. No human being can raise, r rise from the dead. He must not be a human being. He must be the Son of God. Okay, what does the Son of God tell me is true? You see? And so I'm kind of, I'm developing, a, developing this thing from the, from the ground up as opposed to from a top-down kind of, um, well, I believe in God. It's God's word. These are my presuppositions. You're sort of saying, okay, I'm going to start with reason, what a reasonable person could believe, and then go build the case upward from there. At a certain point, because Jesus tells you things that aren't reasonable, you have to come to this conclusion of, wouldn't it be reasonable to believe that my reason is insufficient? And that's, you know, that's an interesting thing, even philosophically, aside from the point, is doesn't reason itself tell you that reason is insufficient for the fullness of, of life, for the fullness of truth. Um, that is interesting. It's worth, it's worth thinking about. Doesn't reason itself give you a tool and a limitation? Uh, and I mean, prove to, sorry, I said that sloppily, but doesn't reason itself, if you follow it, show you its bounds and show you that it's simply a tool and it's a tool that doesn't work in all instances. In fact, it's a tool that can lead you astray. Um, so if that's the case then, I've just made a case to bind myself to an authority that is greater than I and who better than the Son of God. Right? 
And if I'm going to believe that he's the son of God, I'm going to believe that he's infallible, and I'm going to believe what he says. So anyway, I'm just, I'm trying to present to you another way of making the argument, right, other than I think what frequently turns off unbelievers when Christians say to them, well, I believe it's God's word. Well, why do you believe it's God's word? Because it says it's God's word, kind of circular circular reasoning. I'm trying to give a different approach, a little bit more of a sophisticated, nuanced approach that gives opportunity to challenge them on an evangelical sort of way. Well, why do you believe that he's not risen from the dead? What evidence do you have? Because there are some ways that we can proceed along that, and it's, it kind of goes like this. Like, we have more historical attestation of the resurrection of Jesus than we have for any other historical figure known to man. So, if you're going to be rational, if you're going to be reasonable, and you're going to get rid of what the scriptures attest to and what they say, then you need to be consistently rational and simply set aside all of history. Um, that's an argument John Warwick Montgomery makes. He makes a similar argument in regard uh, to like the courtroom and, and the, um, like what evidence is required in order to believe something. And if you have all of these eyewitness testimonies that you don't believe and you're just going to reject those, you have to realize you're not, you're not only rejecting these things, these specific claims, you're rejecting an entire system and way of coming to know the truth about something. Ultimately, you're going to end up rejecting the entire legal system as well. So you're going to get rid of the legal system and you're, because the standards of evidence there, Christianity fulfills. But you're rejecting Christianity, you have to reject the system. And the same with history. So you end up, are you prepared to reject all of those things? And if not, are you truly being rationally consistent or are you yourself being biased? All right, so we can have these more, um, we can have these kinds of more sophisticated conversations with people as we engage them on that point. Anyway, I don't know if I answered your question specifically, but I at least gave a lengthy answer. <laughs> yeah. So that, that, um Recent, the recent expose into reason um, took me away from the point I was going to make, but the Greeks knew that there was paradox in reason. I mean, they over and over and over again and wrote about it. But what I was going to say <laughs> prior is that when you were speaking of St. Paul and the other Lutheran body, I went to a Bible study years ago that a Lutheran pastor was leading, and that was exactly the case he made. He said, Paul is bound by his time. So we can take what he said about women, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and just say, well, that was nice for then. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it kind of insults me as a Lutheran to know that other people viewed Lutheranism as a total body. Mm -hmm. And it's going to go down the way to wreck and ruin and people are still going to think we're Lutherans in that vein. Yeah. And yeah. it's kind of hard sometimes. Yeah, we have an uphill battle here in America, don't we? We, we do. always have. <laughs> yeah, and they've stolen all our names. Yes. Catholic, that's what we are, can't use it. Evangelical, that's what we are, we're the first, can't use it. Lutheran, can't use it. What are you people? <laughs> Yeah. Well, and that, and as awkward as it is, I mean, I'm no fan of Lutheran Church Missouri Synod because, in, I, I mean, in our, what, what does that mean? It's just weird, you know. It's just weird. What is, what's up with Missouri? Uh, you know, it's a weird thing. But I still cling to it because it's one of the only differentiating things we have left to say. Wait a minute, we're not like right. the others. Yeah. And then when you yeah. say it, they say, I've never heard of that. Yeah. 
That's, hey, that's great. That reminds me of my elevator story. We were all, a bunch of us pastors were at a conference center and we were all um, piling into the elevator to get down to breakfast and have the start of the session. We had our, on our little lanyards with the name tags that said, you know, Pastor Rody Faith Lutheran Church or whatever. And this guy gets in with his beach shorts and his Hawaiian shirt and his, his hair all over the place. And he, oh, Lutherians, I know you guys. <laughs> Probably not if you think we're Lutherians. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, I like it. Okay. Um, yes, please. Uh, just one second. So in the framework you discussed a moment ago about... It's one thing when you're talking with someone that's seeking faith. And, and looking for faith. I wondered if you could touch on how the Holy Spirit works in someone that hasn't yet been baptized, if they're reading the scripture, because as Wolf Mueller points out, a lot of when you read the Bible by yourself, the devil's in your ear saying, you know, is that true? Did God really say that? Mm -hmm. So how can we witness to people if they haven't been baptized? I mean, that kind of the framework you just discussed. Yeah. yeah. How, how does the Holy Spirit work on someone if they haven't been baptized, I guess. Does yeah, it come right. through the word? Does it come through them hearing the word spoken? Can they get it by reading the word by themselves? Yes, is the short answer. All, all of the above. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, you know, and, and that's so the word of Christ, I think, there's what's operative. Hearing is obviously very, very important. I don't know of anyone who has become Christian and remained Christian, just me and my Bible. It's not how it works. Particularly because if you read the Bible, you recognize there's this thing called baptism and there's this thing called the church, you know. And, and so I think, um, I think that we need, to, we need to just direct people to that, that if, if it's just you and your Bible, recognize what your Bible says about the church and the pastoral office and the sacraments and um, that we're all together. There's no such thing as me and my Bible, or at least if that exists, it doesn't exist very long. It's a member cut off, you know. Yeah, yeah, and this, this whole, I mean, me and my Jesus thing and me and what I believe thing is this individualism is really unheard of. And in, for the vast majority of our history as human beings would immediately be recognized as weakness. Wait a minute, you're the only one who thinks this recipe of truth is correct? These scattered fragments and doctrines from all the different denominations that you've cobbled together into your own, that's proof itself that it's false. If, only, if it's only you and Jesus and your faith, and it, that's, that's invalidating in and of, its, uh, in and of itself. Um, what are you talking about? You have to, if, if you are truly a Christian, you believe what all Christians believe. And we can even point to scriptures that, to that effect, you know, where Jude talks about the faith or the deposit of faith. Um, but faith singular, not faith like, you know, the act of believing, but faith as in the content our goal as Christians is to all have the exact same faith, the exact same confession, to be conformed together. So anyway, that's the way I go. I mean, the Holy Spirit can do whatever he wants. The Word's powerful. He can create faith when and where he wants. But my encouragement would be, hey, follow through, because the same Holy Spirit in the same Word is telling you there's a church and baptism and the Lord's Supper. Yeah. Yes, sir. I struggle with this same, same business of the moniker of uh, Missouri Synod or whatnot. I hesitate to even use it in talking to non-Lutheran Christians. 
no one phrase is sufficient. Um, a couple are a little better, but still require explanation. The two that come to my mind are orthodox Christians, still has to be explained, and the other is reformed Catholic, small Catholic. Mm. And, and then I got to explain that, but it's actually a little easier than just saying Lutheran. Well, that's Lutheran. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah it's, all, it's all freighted. I mean, and of course, Lutheran was slanderous in and of itself because, I mean, who wants to be a Rhodian? Nobody wants to be a Rhodian, and nobody wants to be a Lutheran, you know? I mean, nobody, it's a, it's a slander to use that, and nobody wanted it. And then it just kind of stuck, and it kind of became, uh, okay, if that's what you think we are, then that's what we are. Yeah, there is no good name. But you bring up a, uh, you bring up a more important kind of meta point, and that's a point um, to remember. As you engage people, um, don't feel this pressure that it's your job to best them at the argument, that it's your job to convince them, and that somehow you've failed if you haven't. Right? We, the scripture says that we are witnesses. We are ambassadors. The most important thing as we engage people is to remember who we are. We are God's children. We are witnesses. We are ambassadors. I'm going to do for you, whether you're, whether you're an unbeliever, whether you're a, a, a complete and total atheist, whether you're open to Christianity, whether you're of some different denomination or some different cult or what, you know, whatever. I'm going to engage you as an individual and I'm going to do what I can do to help you. And if I, and if I can't help you, I'm not going to feel bad about that. I'm going to be a, a, I'm a child of God. I'm a witness. I'm an ambassador. I've, I've got what I've got. The Holy Spirit's going to use it if he wants to use it. I'm going to proclaim the gospel. I'm going to, if, if there's opportunity for, for some law, I'm going to, I'm going to find, a, find a way to say that. When the opportunity arises for the gospel, the forgiveness of sins, I'm going to say that. When there's opportunity for an argument to be made, I'm going to make that argument. Um, but I'm always doing so in love for the individual that the individual will come to their senses and be saved. And, um, and then again, if I fail, I'm not going to feel bad about it. If I don't have the answer, I'm not going to feel bad about it. I might reflect on it and strengthen my strategy and approach for the next time, but, um, but that's it. And so we just need to remember who we are in our place and role and take comfort in that. All right, so uh, that takes us through um, these, these three points that, as Wolf Mueller says, you know, most of, other than the mainline, other than the old mainline denominations, uh, most of American Christianity accepts these three points. Over on uh, page 43, he introduces us to three points where he sees American Christianity, even those who agree with us that the Bible is uh, infallible, inerrant, and inspired. These are three points where uh, even our friends in this regard fail. Okay, so middle of the page on page 43, <clears throat> looks like approximately the third paragraph down. American Christianity confesses the truth of the Scriptures with tenacity. This is good, but its doctrine of the Scriptures stops there. There is more to say about the Bible. Three more attributes to add to the list, and here they are. Clarity, sufficiency, and efficacy. American Christianity is weak on clarity and sufficiency, 
and it fails completely to confess the most important and comforting attribute, the efficacy of the Scriptures. Okay, so these are three areas now we're going to uh, be a little critical. All right, he begins uh, by introducing clarity. The Scriptures are clear. The devil assaults the Word of God, and the first thing he attacks is the clarity of the Word. Did God really say? The devil asked Eve, and he has been asking the same question ever since. The devil wants the Bible to be unclear, the sound of the Scriptures muddled, and the light of God's Word dimmed. The devil asserts the unclarity of the Scriptures. He insists that something else is needed to understand the Bible. Any church that needs someone or something to come alongside the Scriptures implicitly denies the clarity of God's Word. The Roman Catholic Church teaches the unclarity of the Scriptures when it insists that only the magisterium of the Church, under the head of the Pope, can expound the Bible. The Roman Catholic Church puts tradition and the church alongside the scriptures denying sola scriptura. Okay, so if you were to analyze the authority structure, the, and, and here properly speaking, the sort of epistemological structure of Roman Catholicism, it's not merely scripture because who determines the meaning of the scripture? And that, question, and that question is answered by the magisterium and then what they call tradition. Of course, within Roman Catholicism, there's a lot of argument about what tradition means and distinctions between capital T and small t tradition and so forth. Okay. But, objectively speaking, there are these three sort of epistemological foundations. Um, tradition, the magisterium, and the Holy Scriptures. Okay? Um, let me just see. Yeah, I'll just, keep, I'll just keep going a little further with Wolfmuller. <clears throat> Whatever stands alongside the Scriptures replaces the Scriptures. For Rome, what matters in the end is the teaching of the Church, which in the end is the teaching of the Pope. Something similar happens in the Episcopalian Confession. Tradition and reason are brought alongside the Scriptures. Okay, so the Episcopalians here, um, if you analyze, again, and this is, all of this is really meant to be objective. None of this is meant to be like slanderous or putting down. This is, these are largely things that Roman Catholics or Episcopalians would agree with. Okay? So the point here isn't to do some sort of slanderous, well, you all believe this. It's really to sort of find the common ground like, okay, our epistemology looks this way. How does yours look? And if you look then at um, Episcopalianism, um, you have tradition and reason brought alongside the Scriptures. So, not the magisterium um, and tradition, but tradition and reason. Okay, the Methodists, Wolfmuller writes, add experience to the list. Whenever you have Scripture and, there's an ellipsis here, the thing that matters is whatever comes after the and. Okay, so as soon as you say scripture and whatever it may be, um, the, the real rubber hits the road is in whatever that, uh, that addition may be. So, 
Um, another way, I, you know, as you look at the Reformed tradition in general, you can see this kind of working, that it's scripture and reason. You know, and they'll assert sola scriptura, but then it's scripture right up until it's not reasonable to believe that. The flashpoints of this are usually the sacraments. It's not reasonable for me to believe that that's truly Christ's body and blood. And so you see reason operative as an authority. Um, formally, you know, in Calvin's teaching that the finite is not capable of the infinite, I mean, that's a philosophical principle. That's a principle of reason that then asserts itself over the scriptures and says, um, you know, for example, this, this finite piece of bread, this finite sip of wine cannot hold the infinite Christ, you know, this kind of thing. Um, the problem with that principle, analyzed biblically, is it denies the incarnation. How can God, the fullness of the Godhead, dwell in the man Jesus Christ? And so you have that philosophical... So anyway, um, ref the Reformed tradition, generally speaking, Scripture and reason. And uh, um, it tends to be a magisterial use of reason in parts, obviously. Okay, um, any thoughts or any questions on that way of, an, of sort of analyzing what is the epistemological grounding of the different traditions within, within the church? Any thoughts you have or any questions, disagreements you might have with, with the presentation? All right. Skipping down um, past the next two paragraphs, Wolfmuller writes in gigantic type, American Christianity finally denies the clarity of Scripture by denying theological certainty. Ooh, yeah, this is a great point. This is exactly where all of this ceases to be you know, intellectual and the rubber hits the road. Wolfmuller writes, it sounds like this. I'm not Lutheran or Presbyterian. I'm Christian. This is saying, I don't think we can know with certainty whose teaching is correct. The unclarity of the scriptures abounds when small group Bible studies are centered on the question, what does this text mean to you? Yeah, think about that. I mean, just put your finger there in the text because I'm going to do one more sentence, but think about that. What does the text mean to you? It doesn't say what does the text mean. The text, and, and, and what's implicit there is that the text doesn't mean anything if you have to bring your own meaning into it or read your own meaning out of it. Okay, last point from Wolfmuller. The unclarity of the scriptures flourishes when theological assertions are labeled opinions or the opinions of men. So by and large, what's happened in American Christianity is the chief principle has become just being nice. And that niceness is the chief Christian principle here in America. And so I want to be nice. And so I want to say, like, I, it doesn't really matter if you're this or that, if you're a Presbyterian or Roman Catholic. Or I, I, the, the most important thing is that we're all nice. What we don't recognize we're doing is exactly what Wolfmuller points out. And that is we are, whether we recognize it or not, asserting that the scriptures aren't clear that these things can't actually be determined as one way is true, one way is false. We can still be very charitable. We can still acknowledge that there are Christians in other denominations, that many denominational teachings are in fact biblical and Christian and true. No problems there. No problems being charitable and being accurate. 
But we also do want to assert that there are actually concrete differences between denominations and whether those differences, you know, who's right and who's wrong, can in fact be determined by the scriptures. And if we're going to assert that they, they can't, then we've just done this move, maybe without even recognizing it, and that move is to assert or infer that, infer that the scriptures are not uh, clear, that they lack clarity. Okay, so that's kind of a macro view. The micro view, we've all been to Bible studies where, hey, what does this text mean to you? And, you know, yeah, that's a, that's a very relativistic kind of postmodern idea. Um, the ancient way of looking at us, what did it mean to the author? Then that's what it meant. You know, what did the author mean by this? That's what it meant. I mean, Lord have mercy if someone 3,000 years from now gets into my emails and is like, okay, well, we're not going to see what Pastor Rody meant. We're going to see what we can extrapolate from this, what we think it means. I mean, how ridiculous, right? Of course, when I write an email, I mean it to mean something very specific. And same with all of us in our communications. And if I was writing a letter to a, a congregation, the way St. Paul writes letters to congregations, um, you, you, would say, you would say, well, his meaning is very specific. And his meaning is his meaning. And that's the whole point of it. And so we're not going to grab a hold of the scriptures and say, what spiritual truths do I extract from this? I'm going to say, what did Paul mean? Okay, and then we're going to say, how does this apply? Or if, or if this is true, what other things then must be true? And that's really the task of theology and the joy of theology is, in the first place, getting it right, and the second place, seeing that, okay, if that's right, what, what else is right? And how does that tie together? And then how does, how does this thing that was right 2,000 years ago what, is that, what does that correct and right principle mean for me today in my life? Okay, you can see how it's different. Like, what does it mean for me is very different than what does it mean to me? You see how just that preposition can make a real big difference, okay? This obviously has objective meaning. What is the application of that meaning to my life? What does this mean for me? That's very different than what does this mean to me? What do I think? What do I... Uh, read into the text. Okay, so that's the last point to bring up on this question of clarity. Any final thoughts on that point? Let's then break for the week, and next week we're going to look at these other two items, sufficiency and efficacy. Okay, both very important. We're going to see how our culture, how American Christianity has um, especially uh, efficacy, but how they've got sufficiency a little bit askew, and then efficacy completely off base. The Lord be with you. Amen.